Again, a couple of other quick announcements. The bulletin, of course, uh, will not be reaching you this week. We're not having a bulletin in the last week of the year here, and so during the holiday period. And that was mentioned on the one you received, but just to remind you of that. And also the sermon CDs will be ready. Those who requested them from this morning and perhaps tonight uh, will be available on Sunday, next Sunday rather than Wednesday night. So just be, be aware of that. We appreciate the presence of, of everyone, and I appreciate the emphasis in the song service on the church because our lessons today uh, are emphasizing the church. As we looked at this morning, the identifying characteristics of the church, they are clear in Scripture. And we looked at those uh, this morning, and I mentioned at that time that tonight we would continue to emphasize in the lesson tonight the church of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. An article by preacher friend Dan Gully in my hometown, and I appreciate his writings. We feature them in the bulletin on a fairly regular basis. He's an excellent writer. But he had an article not long ago on the church, How Do You See It? How do you see it? And he said the situation there at the church at times reminds him of something Lionel B. Fletcher said, quote, it is easy to shoot a skylark, but it is not so easy to reproduce its song. And then he goes on, there's no other organization or organism on earth like the church Jesus built, and nobody can sing the song she sings. She is the body of Christ on earth. She produces a unique song as she preaches the gospel of peace in a world torn by war. And he makes some other excellent uh, statements about the church in this excellent article. But when he comes again to the question, how do you see the church, he relates a story about uh, how perhaps uh, the story or the illustration could... uh, could remind us of how some people view the church and uh, our perspective on things. He says that um, a man pulled into a gasoline station on the edge of town and asked the attendant, I'm moving here to take a new job and I've never lived in this part of the country. What are people like here? The attendant asked, what are people like where you come from? And the man replied, not so nice. In fact, most of them are unfriendly. The attendant nodded his head and said, well, I'm afraid you'll find the people in this town to be the same way. Just then a second car pulled in and its driver called out, I'm just moving into this area, is it nice here? And the attendant asked the man, was it nice where you came from? And the driver replied, oh yes, it was a great place. People were friendly and I hated to leave. And the attendant said, well, I predict you'll find the same thing to be true in this town. And as the second man pulled away, the first one, irritated with the conflicting answers, demanded, so what is this town really like? And the attendant just shrugged his shoulders and said, it's all a matter of perception. You'll find things to be just the way you think they are. Well, we know how Jesus sees his church, he points out. He loved her and died for her, Ephesians 5.25. How do you see the church? Let's think about it some things tonight that are right with the church. Obviously, there are problems that arise in the church, but tonight I want us to emphasize the things that are right with the church. Of course, from the divine side, the church is perfect. But from the human side, the church is imperfect because it's composed uh, of human beings. It's comprised of human beings. But in a passage we noted this morning, Ephesians 5.23 
The church is absolutely crucial, essential to our salvation, because as the husband is the head of the wife, Christ is also the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5, 23. The body, which is the church, remember Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, God, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1, 18. Salvation, then, is in the body, as we pointed out this morning. That passage in Ephesians 5, 23 makes that abundantly clear. Therefore, we cannot reject the church, as we noted this morning, and still be saved. Yes, sometimes things go wrong in a congregation. At Corinth, there were divisions. We noted some this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There were parties. There was adultery. There was abuse of spiritual gifts. There was strife. There were, a, there were a number of problems in the church at Corinth, and Paul wrote to address those. Sometimes a church can apostatize to the point that God will reject the church. Look at the Revelation letter and the letters to the churches of Asia. Revelation 2, verse 5, concerning the church at Ephesus. I have this against you. Many compliments were paid to the church at Ephesus. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And he said, either you repent or I'll remove your candlestick out of its place. In other words, I'll reject you. Sometimes individuals hurt the church by the lives that they live. Yes, there are two sides to the church. The divine side, which is perfect. The human side, which is imperfect. With its errors in judgment and weaknesses and mistakes. But too often, people only see the human side. And so they ask, what is wrong with the church? But many things are right with the church. Things that are worthy of equal time, if you will. Think about a few with me tonight. Here's something that's right with the church. It realizes the greatness of God. How does the world view God? The world doesn't realize the greatness of God. It's the church that realizes the greatness of God. In fact, the world has almost forgotten God's greatness. The atheists have launched a frontal assault, and especially in uh, the last uh, several years, and even in this year that's coming to an end, the atheistic assault has been perhaps uh, uh, more prevalent than it has been in in the past, they've forgotten God altogether. Others are indifferent toward God. Ungodliness proves all of this. But the church holds out God as the sovereign ruler of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a great passage in, in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. There's the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God is the sovereign ruler of the universe and it's the church that holds out to the world God's greatness as the sovereign ruler of this universe. It is the church that affirms the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24 and verse 1. And the church...
pleads with the lost to submit to the God of heaven, to recognize not only his existence, but also to recognize something else, our second point, and that is that Jesus, the Christ, is the divine Son of God. That's what the church realizes, not only the greatness of God, but it also realizes the divine sonship of Jesus. In Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe has revealed himself. God, as the sovereign ruler of the universe, has revealed himself to us through his divine, only begotten Son. John fourteen nine. remember? Jesus said, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet have you not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. When Philip said, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us, that was the Lord's response. He who has seen me has seen the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was, the word was God. But that Word, verse 14 of John 1, became flesh and dwelt among us to reveal God to man and to die on Calvary and to shed his precious sinless blood that we might have the hope of eternal salvation. Listen to what Peter, or what Philip, uh, what Paul wrote rather in the Philippian letter, a very familiar text to most if not all of us tonight, but one that's worthy of repetition time and time again. Have this mind in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in fashion or appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now verse 9, therefore God, therefore, because he was willing to do that, because he sacrificed as he did, because he humbled himself as he did, then God has also highly exalted him given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. God has exalted Jesus to a supreme position. King of kings he is and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy six, fifteen. The way, the truth, the life, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By that man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all in that he has what? Raised him from the dead. The divine sonship of Jesus is clearly proclaimed by the church of our Lord tonight to a lost and dying world. And Jesus has made it clear that he who rejects that plea, he who rejects me and does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken, the word that I have spoken, will judge him in the last day. Oh, yes. What is right with the church? It realizes the greatness of God. It realizes the divine sonship of Jesus. And thirdly, it upholds the divine authority of this book, the Bible. The Bible is the mind of God revealed to man through inspired men. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The church upholds the divine authority of the Bible. And think of some of the characteristics of that word. It purifies and saves, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. In James 1, 21, we're admonished to receive with meekness the implanted or engrafted word which is able to save your souls. It has that kind of power. We've already quoted 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that furnishes us completely unto every good work. Paul to the Ephesian elders said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God and to what? The word of his grace, which is what? Able to do what? Build you up and to do what? Give you an inheritance. There's the power of the word of God. In it, we have the ability to obtain the inheritance that awaits the faithful. If we will be faithful... And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my pathway, the psalmist declared. In Psalm 119, 105. And anyone who adds to or takes away from the words of this inspired book, to him the plagues will be added. Remember Revelation 22, 18 and 19. The church of our Lord tonight upholds the Bible as being authoritative as being complete, as being inspired, as being final, as being unchangeable, as being absolute. And man needs nothing else in order to go to heaven. That's what the church does. It realizes and upholds the divine authority of the Bible. What is right with the church? Something else that's right is that the church is the institution that holds out hope to a troubled world. The world in which we live tonight is built on a foundation of change and a foundation of uncertainty. I believe all of us here tonight would certainly agree that that's the case. And we would agree that in the very moment of time in which we find ourselves tonight, doubt exists. Doubt exists in the realm of government. Doubt exists in the realm of life. Doubt exists in the realm of science. Doubt exists in every secular Realm. There's trouble on every hand. The church has a sure foundation. For other foundation can no one lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, Jesus said. That's the sure foundation, Jesus Christ, and that he is the Christ upon which the church is built and the church holds out to the world the blessings of God. The blessings of God. All spiritual blessings are in Christ. Remember a passage we looked at in the lesson this morning in the Ephesian epistle. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The blessings of God. They're not earthly blessings. They're not power, that is. They're not honor on this earth. They're not beauty. They're not wealth. Those are not the blessings that the church holds out to the world. They are spiritual blessings. Blessings that, that far exceed power and 
worldly honor, physical beauty, or wealth. They're blessings of peace. They're blessings of contentment. Philippians chapter 4. Remember the Apostle Paul admonished the church there, and thus Christians for all time to come be anxious for nothing, verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A few verses later, one verse, as a matter of fact, later, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are just, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. That's what the church holds out. And contentment? What about contentment? Peace and contentment? Paul, the same chapter of Philippians, not that I speak in regard to need, verse 11, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And what about strength? That's the next verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What about hope? Though the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The church holds out hope for those in need. As you have, therefore, opportunity, work that which is good toward all men, especially toward those who are of the household of the faith. Galatians 6, 10. Do you realize the church is the best friend civil government ever had? The church is the best friend civil government ever had. Don't we wish civil government knew that? <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Listen to Romans 13 for a few verses beginning at verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. He goes on, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And he goes on, yes, civil government has in the church its best friend, if it would realize that. Because when those in the church obey the teachings, as in Romans 13, they obviously are the best friend the government could have. The church holds out hope of salvation through the gospel to a lost and dying world. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the church's charge. The church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, is to take that truth to all the world. And thus the church holds out the hope of forgiveness to the world. Forgiveness. And forgiveness that is held out to the world by the church is the forgiveness that comes from God. The forgiveness that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Isaiah 1, 18. 
the church says to the world, all hope is not lost. That's what the church says to the world. What's right with the church? Something else that is right with the church is that it is building strong families. God designed marriage and the family, and only his guidance can make it what it ought to be. And the church acknowledges this. The church believes this. And therefore, the church is building strong families by its moral foundation, by upholding and defending God's design for marriage, for life, by encouraging love and guidance for children, by encouraging respect for parents, by teaching proper family roles, by giving families the guidance to deal with the crises in life, and by teaching what real love is and teaching the family how to demonstrate real love within that family. There are no families stronger than good Christian families. There's no question about it. What is right with the church? It provides fellowship. You know, everyone needs other people. God knew that at the very beginning, didn't he? Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. In Acts 28.15, there's an example there of this point we're making concerning the church. You remember when, when Paul, on the journey to Rome, finally had made it to the Italian shore, and he's almost to Rome, but the Roman brethren don't wait for him to get all the way into the city. No, if you look at Acts 28, 15, after saying we went toward Rome, verse 13, and uh, verse 14 rather, and then from there, when the brethren, listen to it, heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum and three ends. And when Paul saw them, what? He thanked God and took courage. There's a lot in that statement that we need to fully appreciate about the blessing of fellowship that the church provides. The brethren came out to greet him, and when Paul saw them, he took courage. He took courage. The quality of Christian fellowship is seen throughout the New Testament. Look at Acts 2 in regard to the early church, the church that was established in Jerusalem. Verse 44, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. The preciousness of fellowship is seen there. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friend. John 15, 13. And where is that bond any greater 
Where is that relationship any closer or sweeter than in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, 32. And don't be deceived because evil company corrupts good habits. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. There's the contrast to the precious fellowship that the church provides. Evil company corrupts good habits. As we draw closer to the end of another year, let us never be guilty of taking for granted the quality of the Christian fellowship that exists right here at White Oak. Let us treasure it, let us continue it, and let us even intensify it and determine to intensify it and make it even sweeter in the year ahead. So what is right with the church? It realizes the greatness of God. It realizes the divine sonship of Jesus. It upholds the divine authority of the Bible. It holds out hope to a troubled world, and this is a troubled world. It is building strong families, and it's providing precious, precious fellowship. Oh, yes, there are faults. There are faults at times and problems because there are human beings in the church. But the first century church functioned in spite of human frailties. And so we must never become guilty of nitpicking about the negatives and failing to emphasize the positives. You can't find any other body on earth, any other institution on earth standing for all of these things we've mentioned tonight and even more that haven't been mentioned. The church does that. Are you a member of the church tonight? If not, the Bible gives guidance as to how we become a part of the Lord's body. And there is only one way, one way to do that, and that is by obedience to the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. Believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus to be the Christ. And then being buried in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He who believes and is baptized, Jesus said, will be saved. When you do those things out of a pure heart, then the Lord himself will add you to the church about which we have emphasized and spoken to, that we have emphasized and about which we've spoken today. The pre-denominational body of believers, precious beyond description, the hope of the world, the church of our Lord. If you haven't been added to the kingdom by obedience to the gospel, we plead with you to do that. And if you have, but you know tonight that you're not living in accordance with the teaching of God's Word as a faithful member of that body and that you need to come home to the Lord and to the church for which the Lord Jesus Christ shed His precious blood. Do so in repentance, confession publicly of any sin that needs to be confessed in that manner, and we'll pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who will truly forgive and forget if we will truly, truly repent. As we stand to sing, please come.